We want to welcome you. If you're our guest here, my name is Greg Harris, the senior pastor at Olive Branch. Glad you guys are a part of today's celebrations of our VBS slash kids camp slash returning to VBS. We had tried to rename it. We realized it didn't work. Um, so it'll be VBS next year again. And so we'll see how that goes. Um, people clapped for service for that, by the way. That was interesting. Um, Oh, some of you can laugh too. That's cool. You don't have to. It doesn't matter now. Um, so we're going to, um, what I really want to do though is we're going to focus in. These kids worked hard. They did a great job, but we're going to shift into a new series on branded living, really kind of picking back up in the book of Colossians, looking at where we're headed and, um, and what the scriptures are talking about here in the next section. And so before we dive into anything else, I want to just take a minute and just pray. So would you join with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have allowed it to be the same for generation after generation, and yet you've applied it in so many ways through so many cultures and so many time periods. God, even into the hearts and minds of children at their ages, we, we're able to see it impact and shape. Thank you that you can impact and shape us as well here today as we dive in and we, we begin to see you kind of reroute some of our thinking systems. You begin to transform some of the ways that we view not only scripture, but our lives. So as we begin to dive into this, would you just allow us to glorify you by listening carefully and, and walking with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, speaking of, of, of this idea of brands back here, I grew up in a time period where brands were, you probably all did, we all grew up in a time period of brands were the number one thing. The problem for me was I wasn't very good with brands in the sense that I wasn't aware of like clothing brands. You know what I mean? I knew there were Jordache and I knew there was like Levi's and I knew there was like Wranglers and I knew you weren't supposed to wear one of them. And that's about all I understood. And so I had no clue about like what kind of clothing I was supposed to wear, when I was supposed to wear them or that kind of stuff. I only figured that out after I got married, my wife said, that doesn't go together. But growing up for me, I only knew one thing. It was where you shopped that mattered in Corona. Because, you know, you were, you were in the right store when you were in that wonderful place called Miller's Outpost. Anybody remember Miller's Outpost? That was the place you had to shop. And I shopped at Mervyn's. Uh, so... That's kind of my mom was like, those are cute. We're not in the right store. You know, so, but Miller's Outpost was the place today. I think it's Tilly's is like the all, you know, it's like the Miller's Outpost. Miller's Outpost doesn't exist. Neither does Mervyn's. You get how that works. But, but for me, that was the brand thing. You know, you had to be there to get the right stuff, to get the Quicksilver, to get whatever it was that was popular at the time, your Birkenstocks, your, you name it. And it, fads and brands change. But I, I just am not a brand person so much so that even in, in college, by the time it came to like choices of soda, I didn't even choose like Pepsi or Coke. Any Pepsi fans in here? Anybody like, I'm a Pepsi only drinker? Okay, somebody, how many Coke fans are like a Coke products only kind of? Okay, that, that's something that divides people. Any RC Cola people in here, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm uh, drink RC Cola at my, uh, up, up my grandmother's and my parents bought all the time. It's so weird. But I chose the Walmart brands. They had 25 cents for Walmart outside. It was like Dr. Magic or some weird thing like that. It wasn't even Dr. Pepper. And he was like, yeah, it works for me. 25 cents, sugar in a can. It's good and with caffeine. And that was the whole aim and, aim and goal of my life when it came to brands. But I'll tell you what, the number one um, brand as I've grown up that I've stuck to, that's my brand, and you don't mess with this brand, Legos. Legos are my brand. I mean, I, like for years, my, my kids have like a million Legos. I'm probably not joking at this point. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Legos stored somewhere in my house. I think I could shake my shirt and have one fall out. But the, when you go in my home, there's, each room has a bunch of Legos. And every year, for some reason, around Christmas time, somebody, like probably a distant family member or something, buys them one of those like 
like non-Lego sets. I mean, I'm not against Mega Bloks, but I'm against Mega Bloks. I don't know if you work for them. I understand. It's okay. But, but not, even worse than Mega Bloks, like a dollar store version of Legos. Like you come out and they're like, they're like compatible with Legos. And like you try to hook them on, they're bending weird. They don't work. They pop off. And you're like, this is not compatible. This does garbage. So I'm so serious about this. I have sorted through the million Legos in my home, picking out all the off brands and throwing them in the trash. My kids are like, what happened to my little fireman? He wasn't a Lego character. He's gone. And you think, why are you talking about this, Greg? Because it's spiritual. It's super spiritual. I'm telling you the truth because actually it's an analogy I want you to take into your life. Because when it comes to what Paul has been teaching us in the book of Colossians, it lands all of this information in one location, in one verse. In fact, what he did is he started way back. You remember the Colossians were a young church, only about, about eight years old. And in this town in the middle of um, in modern-day Turkey is where it would be found, this small town of Colossians is having trouble. They've got a false teacher that's come and tell them, look, you've got to follow all these rules. You've got to do all these things to have this super spiritual experience with God. And if you'll do that, man, then you'll be with God. It'll be awesome. And they were so immature, they didn't know better. They couldn't defend themselves. And so we started off showing that Paul said, look, you've got to get out of Neverland. You've got to grow up. It's time to get spiritually mature. Well, how do I do that? Well, you do it by looking at Jesus and, and the beautiful Jesus of who he is. And, it's, and so he goes through this passage of describing Jesus and what Jesus is like. And we go, okay, so, so what do I do with this Jesus? He says, you know what? Here's what you do with Jesus. You've got to make sure that you follow him together. And that's the simplicity of Christianity. We summed it up in that, in that last series. Is it's about following Jesus together. Not about all these rules and trying to make God happy with you. It's not about following your own heart. No, it's about following Jesus together. And so Paul lands it with this final verse. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whether it's at home or whether it's at work, Whatever you do, whether it's on the freeway or whether you're shopping in Miller's Outposts, you can't do that anymore. Whether it's at, whether it's at Target, whether, wherever you are at church, whatever you do, what, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let his name, his brand, his stamp be on it. And that's why I was saying what we need to do is we need to dig into the areas of our lives, look through all the off-brand things that are not about Jesus and get rid of them. So that you have pur you've just purged and put together this life that is branded by Jesus. A, a, brand, a life that Jesus said, boom, I approve. Boom, that's mine. Approved. That we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul then begins a journey through the, the centerpiece of, of the ancient world's life and the modern world, actually. The, the centerpiece of the society. He says, as a church, we're to follow Jesus together. And that includes even in the beginning place called the home. So now he begins to go through a journey of, of describing the home. And he starts at the center of what makes the home, and that's the marriage. And so today we're going to look at, at Paul's conversation and description of how we should have a Christ-branded marriage. A marriage that is stamped by Jesus to say that, that's what it's supposed to look like. And that's found in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. And we're going to look at 18 and 19. If you want to grab your Bible, open it up with me. You'll find it there. Um, or if you want, you can grab a Bible from under the seats. You'll find it on page 984. You can join us there. You can even pull open the app at home and join us if you're watching online and be a part of what we're, what we're doing here. And so... 
Now, I just want to warn you. You're going to open up. We're going to read this in a second. And this is probably one of the most controversial sets of verses we'll find in the Bible in this current time period. It is going to, it automatically has a sense of like, I don't like that. And if you're new to the church and you're new to Christianity, I want you to just kind of bear with me for a minute and kind of roll with the passage because it can feel extremely offensive and extremely upsetting. And so I'm going to, I'm just kind of giving you, giving you a warning here. Here so we can dive in. And here's how it works. Look, notice it says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. All right, there we go. Feel the discomfort in the room. Just breathe it in, okay? And we're gonna move forward because look, when, whenever you tell, tell wives you need to submit to your husbands, this is just not going well in a marriage. Husbands, if you've ever tried that one, don't do it again. We'll, we'll talk about why in a second. But here, this is, this is scripture talking here. And so I want us to dive into this in a way that, that I help ease it up because there's so much cultural assumption going on here. There's so much infused into this text that it's not saying. And so we need to begin this with a few observations. So again, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so he begins with this journey of this word submission, the word that I think is bugging most of us in the text. And the reason why is because it's a word about order. And that's what I want to start with. The Jesus-branded marriage is actually an ordered kind of marriage. It has an order to it. There's, there's a leader and there's followers. There's a decision-making tree, if you want to put it that way. There, there's, an, there's a system of order that's happening here. This system of order is not, just so you know, it, it is not about value. Let's, let's just clear this out right at the beginning. This has nothing to do with value. You see, God himself says that he is a God of order. Let's start here. Watch this. In the, in, in, if you look into science and, and, and you look into the world, we, have, we proclaim there's a God who created the world. And if God says he's a God of peace or a God of order, the word is the same word in, in, the, Greek and the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew and the Greek. They say order and, and peace come together. He says, if God's a God of order, what you should expect when you go into the world and examine the world by scientific endeavors is you should discover order. Guess what we find? order. We find laws of physics. We find order to, to the universe that, we, that, is, that is weird that we can even notice it. God is a God of order. Not only that, does he order the world and order the universe according to physical laws and moral laws and all of these other things. He orders himself. I'm going to take you on a journey, a little deep dive here into some theology for a second, but I think it's important. So because we want to see where this is coming from. And so this idea of order is coming from within God himself. So we don't worship a God who is just like the old man upstairs. You know, there's kind of this view out there that God's this single dude up there just going like, hey, hey, look at the world. I spun it and walked away. You know, that's not the God of Christianity. It's not some old man with a beard. He's not, you know, some floating ambiguity of force that exists. No, God is a triune being. He is a father, son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons who was one essence God. And all of them are equally God. Equal in value, equal in nature, equal in power. This is actually not a conversation or an argument at the beginning of the first, second, and third centuries. They're not even debating over how Jesus is God or that the Spirit is God. They're saying, yep, that's given. We know they're God. The question was, well, how do they work as God? 
And so the Father was the one who, who came up with the plan of creation and speaks it. The Son is the word that brings and create, he creates by, and the Spirit is actually the one that applies it. When it comes to redemption, salvation, the ability for humanity not to go to hell, but to, be in, to enter into heaven through Jesus Christ, he, the Father plans it. The Son executes the plan, and the Spirit applies it. The Father comes up, we need to save people. Here's how we're going to do it. The, Jesus says, I will go down there. I will become a human being. I'll submit to human beings. I will not only do that, I will die on a cross, bear the sins of others, and then the Spirit goes, well, I'll take that and then I'll apply it to the people who receive him. And so all three persons of God are working in consort in orderliness to apply a goal. Strangely, the reason I bring this up is because the terminology when we talk about the Trinity in that form is called economic Trinitarianism. Uh, you're like, wow, that was a $40 word. Take that home. Surprise your friends. It's great. Economic Trinity, the economic Trinitarianism, economic Trinity is it's like that has nothing to do with money. Economics originally comes from the word oikos, which means house. It literally means home organization, the home rules. And how God organizes himself in his economics in his home is there's a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit. The father and a son who is executing the plan, a spirit who is applying the plan, they order themselves even within the relationship, though they're all equally God. Order has nothing to do with value. Order has no bearing on whether you are more valuable or less valuable if you're the leader or the follower. I mean, you ever think about this? What value is a leader anyway without a bunch of followers? If a guy's going, I'm a leader, and he's running out there and nobody's following, he's not a leader, he's a loser. That's what he is. A leader needs followers. A leader has, the leader is made by followers. And there's a value there that's completely different, and it's not about your essential value. Paul has already gotten into this in the text. If you want to look up a few verses, go up to chapter 3, verse 11. It reads, here, meaning in the church in Christ, there is not Greek or Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, listen, it isn't about your, your economic divisions to make you more valuable or less valuable. It's not about whether you're black or white or, or brown or Asian. Nope, it, it has nothing to do with that. It's not about where you come from. It's not about how much money you have. It's not about your job position or how great you are as a CEO or a janitor. Nope, in the church, there is Christ. He is all and he is in all. Your value then is actually not established by what you do, how much money you make, how beautiful you are. It's established by God. And here's how he established your value, whether you're male or female. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear your sins. He said, the value of my son is what you're worth to me. See, in the Old Testament, to know you were part of the covenant, to know you were in relationship with God, here's what's weird. Men, the father and the boys and the family had to get circumcised. Anybody happy we did away with that? Amen. All right. So, okay. You guys can, do you want to pick that one back up? Go ahead. I'm not going to. And, but notice women, how did you identify that you were in the covenant? By being attached to a man who was in the covenant. Either your father, a brother, or your husband. When Jesus comes, he dies on the cross. He doesn't say, okay, men, you come and repent and all your women will be included with you. Nope, that's not how it works. 
He doesn't say, men, you need to repent this way and women, you need to repent that way. No, he says, come, receive me and then show that you receive me by getting baptized. And men and women equally are allowed to be baptized. Men and women are equally brought into the covenant of Christ through receiving what he did on the cross. It is an open way, not barred to men or to women. And in that one act of the cross, Jesus lifts men and women's value to equality as it was intended at the beginning. See, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it reads this way. God created humanity, man, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female are made in the image of God. If you're a female, you are fully the image of God, endowed with the value of God's image, which is an infinite value. It cannot be removed. It cannot be given. Men, same thing. So hear this. No human on earth can add to your value. No human on earth, no government on earth, no people, corporation, or anything can give you value nor take your value away. It is yours by God, whether you're locked in a cell by yourself or whether you are surrounded by other human beings telling you otherwise, your value is infinite. Your value is beautiful. Your value is the value of Jesus Christ on the cross. If we can start there, you can see that the order of leadership and submission has nothing to do with value. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Once we've kind of parsed that out, we'll realize something, that all of you ladies in the room, you have to submit to all the men in the room. And all you men in the room, you have to submit to the ladies. So where did you get that from? I got that from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Speaking to the disciples as disciples, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See here, what we're going to talk about is an ordering that occurs in a marriage, not an ordering that occurs as disciples amongst each other. Now, there is an ordering in the church when it comes to leadership, but I'm not going to get into that conversation. What I'm talking about here is that the ordering of submission to the wife, to the husband, has nothing to do with you single ladies having to obey another man in the church. Rather, it has everything to do with the fact that men and women, we are equals in Christ. As we said, we follow Christ together. You are his disciples. And as his disciples, we willingly submit to each other all over the place, male or female, because that is the call that he's given to us. Let me make that clear. We can't run up to any woman and go, submit if you're a man. No, no. Everybody submits to everybody And in marriage, there's a special order given for the sake of its aim and goal. And that's where we come back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, wives, you need to use the Jesus brand of submission. There is this Jesus' brand of submission that exists, and this is what he calls to. So we see again in in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. So let's unparse this word submit a little bit further. First of all, I want you to see that while it's not a matter of value, it is also not something that God wasn't willing to do first. What you see when it comes to God is that the Father has asked the Son to do something, and Jesus has come with a plan and a goal. In fact, we find in Philippians chapter 2, as Paul is recounting the life of Christ in a short synopsis, he says this, Jesus, who thought he was in the, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't think, he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, grasped, gripped onto. He says, you know what? He is equal with God. He is God, equal in power, stature, value, all of that. He says, you know what? I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to let absolute power corrupt me. I'm going to use this absolute power to bless. And so what he does is he lets go, empties himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. 
He goes even one step further. He submits as a slave even unto death, death on a cross, the most shameful kind. His humility and his submission to the plan of God is shown throughout his entire life as he is willing to constantly obey the Father. And it's culminated in one scene. You can read it in the book of Matthew and the book of Mark. He is the night he's going to be betrayed. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's kneeling and he's praying and he's sweating blood and he's asking the father, father, if there is any other way that this cup can pass from me, meaning the cup of suffering, the cup of bearing humanity's sin and God's wrath for that, for you and for me, if there's any other way to escape that, then help me. And then he finishes his prayer with, but not my will, your will be done. In that very act, Jesus gives us the evidence that he was willing to submit. And in his submission, he, empower, he takes God's plan, executes God's plan so that we can be saved. Submission is about order unto a plan. And even Jesus was willing to do this as he submits himself to the Father. But now, it still doesn't take the sting away. It still doesn't take the frustration away. What's going on? Why am I still uncomfortable with this idea? And, and, and I'll, I'll help you out. Again, you, this is not about your value, but a lot of us feel like it's about our power. Submission is scary because when you hear the term, you think, well, then my husband's going to get to do whatever he wants. How am I, how, what am I, what am I going to do? This is limiting me. And this is in a context right now in our culture where all of us feel it. All of us know this. You may not know what it's called, but you're all getting it from the media. You're getting it from the world around you. And it's called critical theory. Critical theory has been around since the 90s. And, and really, it's infused into our culture. It's kind of like a postmodern Marxism. And I, that was way too much for most of us. But the, the idea is critical theory is the call of this, that if you have someone who has power over you and they are limiting your power, it is an egregious wrong. They are an oppressor. And if you, you are incumbent upon you to keep your liberty by casting off an oppressor, getting rid of those who are trying to limit your decision-making power. And that is the goal for any person found in a class situation that is being oppressed. And oppression is power. And this is the message we're hearing. We're hearing it in economic situations. We're hearing it in racial situations. We're hearing it in sexual orientation situations. We're hearing it in all these ways that you need to rise up, throw off the oppressing power, rise up to a new liberty. And so when you come to church and suddenly you hear, wives, submit to your husbands. You go, well, that's, that's, that's the old rule. That's pushing me under the oppressor. I need to push that off. And the second thing that's coming through is that you're giving up your autonomy. You can't become who you want to become. You've been told all your life you can be who you want to be. You can get any job you want. So go out there and make reality what you want it to be. Get out there and change the stars for yourself. Make your fate. Be the captain of your own ship. Follow your heart. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are, right? <laughs> Anything your heart desires will come to you. These are our messages of our world. And when a woman is asked to submit to her husband who she's married to, they go, wait a minute, that means he's going to get to get his things. He's going to get to do his stuff he wants to do. I'm never going to get to do what I feel like I want to do. Let me just tell you, inside of both of those objections are the very thing that causes divorce. If we believe that our goals are our central, personal, autonomous decisions, Somebody's got to line up. And when they don't, 
you'll go your separate ways. And if you feel someone is oppressing you, whether you're male or female, you will fight to get the other person to shut up and you'll try to win. And in these very essences is the division that has occurred in the 50% of divorces across our world. You see, our country has given us tons and tons of options for marriage now. We've opened the menu board up like crazy, but Jesus has always said no. Even out of the options of male and female together in marriage, there's only one option, and that is a marriage that is branded by Jesus and that is aimed at the same thing. And it's not aimed at our own autonomy. You see, you and I are disciples of Christ. When we came to Jesus, we died to ourselves, bore our cross, and put our own decision-making away. It's not about what I want to be. God has a plan for me, and I'm following him together. Not to become what I want, not to get what I've always desired. I had to let that go when I said I'm following Jesus Christ. Sure, it creeps in, and I have to put it down. But that's the essence of discipleship. To bear your cross daily. To die to yourself. Here's the beautiful thing. People who are following the word of God, who are following Jesus together, it is not true the divorce rate is equal to, the, equal to the world. You'll hear it said all the time. It's not. When they actually factor out cultural Christians, people who just use the name of Christ, and they focus in on those who go to church regularly, read their Bible regularly, it's under 10%, if not lower. Guys, the fact is that when we follow the Jesus-branded version, it becomes powerful unto this goal because there's an order. And you don't lose what you want because what you both want is aligned in the same direction. And the desire that you want is what every disciple wants, is to be like Christ. That's what your marriage is for. So you can go further, faster, and to become like Christ. If you thought it was about happiness, you're going to be woefully disappointed because it's about holiness. That's why it's so difficult and fiery and because where there's friction and heat, things can mold and bend. And God allows this tension and this order in, in who we are to align us unto being like Christ together. And so we press on to be like Christ. And so submission in the women's department is to say, hey, in the, in, sorry, in the wife's department is to say, hey, I am aligning up behind my husband who is leading me unto the desire I desire, which is to be like Christ, because my husband wants to be like Christ. I ain't going to fight that. He's aiming me. I'm aiming. I'm pushing him. I'm empowering him. Together, we're going to get there better. And we're going to find ourselves like Christ together. This means something. That you and I need to be very, very, very keen on something. Because if, if, if wives, you're going to submit behind your husband, it's as fitting to the Lord. What do I mean by that? On one side, yeah, it's fitting that the Lord submitted. So yeah, you should submit. But at the same time, it's fitting in the sense that your submission ought to fit into the Lord. What do I mean by that? There's a limit on what you need to submit to. You are a follower of Jesus before you are his wife. If the statistics bear out, your husband will be gone before you. Which is just how it works. Guys die faster. And you will be a follower of Jesus still and not his wife. And this is how it works. You are always a follower of Jesus before you are a married couple. And you are brother and sister in Christ before you are husband and wife. And in the ordering of the family unit, yeah, you follow his lead because he's leading you to what you both desire as Christians, to be holy and like Christ. It's fitting to the Lord. And so what happens here is he can't tell you, submit. Submit. 
He can't. Here's why. That's not how the word works. Nowhere in scripture does it tell a wife to obey her husband. It tells children to obey. It tells slaves to obey masters. It tells us to obey our government. It never tells you to obey your husband. Why? Because submission is a different word. Submission is this, is, it's really helpful to know this, so I want to tell you this. It's actually, the word is hupotasomai, and that's a middle deponent. Doesn't that help? That's awesome. No, it, has, no, it doesn't help at all. So it helps one person, the linguist in the room. It's like the, uh, the middle deponent means that it, it cannot be translated except to reference the self, meaning that I can only submit myself into it. Nobody can make you submit. People can make you obey. They cannot make you submit. You can obey them and not be submitted. Submission is a self-determined position. You submit yourself to the order. So it's out of your own power. God's asking you to make a choice to submit yourself to the leaders. That means there's times where you don't have to submit. And those times are very clear. And here's when you know, when it doesn't line up with your Lord, who is not your husband, it's Jesus. Jesus is your Lord. Now check this out. We've all heard this quote lately of Romans chapter 13, right? Something about you got to submit to your government. And we're like, what are you talking about? Well, it's kind of true. You got to submit to your government. It wasn't really used exactly right. But here's the thing. Even when you submit to your government, you don't submit in everything to your government because even the disciples, the apostles standing before the Sanhedrin, their government were told, do not preach in the name of Jesus. You know what they said? They said this, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. And ladies, when your husband asks you to do something that violates your conscience, when your husband asks you to do something that's clearly against the word of God, that is clearly not in his zone, you can look at him and say, it's better to obey God rather than you. So here's my advice. Women, be geniuses at the word of God. All of you learn it, study it, memorize it, have it down. Because it's, guess what, guys? You got your work cut out for you now, so you better start studying the word of God. Have it down. Know that when you're making decisions, it's in the will of God. It's aimed at his desire to make your wife holy, to make your family holy, to send you towards Jesus, that together we progress together. Now there's an order you can get behind. And that's what this is about. It's not about your power. That was lost when we followed Jesus. It's not about your value. That is given to you by God and cannot be taken away. It is about order unto the destiny, the desire to be more and more like Christ. It's about following Jesus together. Whatever you do, whatever you do in, whether it's actions or word, do it all in the name of Jesus. And here, if your family, if, if your marriage unit is able to do that, you become a blessing to the church because you're walking with Christ, drawing closer. And then as we follow Jesus together, our singles in community, they're becoming more like Christ. They're a blessing to us. And suddenly all of Branch is a blessing to the churches in Corona as we're all driving near to Christ. And then Corona is a blessing to Riverside. And Riverside's a blessing to California. And California is a blessing to the world. Wouldn't that be awesome? And what we wind up with is a beautiful, beautiful kingdom of God. Amen? But you got to get the goal right. You've got to get it aimed at Jesus. What do you do if you're under the, head, under the leadership of a man who isn't a Christian? What do, you, what do you do? You know the word of God and you obey your Lord and follow your Lord. And when your husband asks you to do something that you're uncomfortable with, no, it would violate your conscience and is sinful, you say, no, I'm sorry. I have to obey Jesus rather than you. 
and you be kind and you stand firm. Not easy. That's why you need community. That's why we do it together. But this is the route, and you love and you care as Christ did. But this, this is only one side of the picture. Because husbands, guess what? If, if they're supposed to be in submission to you, in, in following you, that means you ought to be leading. And so husbands, how do you lead? You lead with the Jesus brand of love. Because here's the problem. God just handed you a whopping bunch of power. A whopping bunch of authority. And it's not like you didn't already hand out power and authority to men genetically. Let's just be honest for one minute, please. Let's pull the cultural shades off for a second and realize the Marvel women can't really kick like that. I mean, you watch some of these guys. These guys are like rough and tumble, beat up dudes. They're like walking, they're like, oh, they're down on the floor. You know, there, there's gag reels where they actually accidentally do punch them. They're like, bah, and then the guy's like, oh, it's okay. I'm, I'm good. Because women aren't that strong. And that's not an offensive thing. It's just a reality. My wife comes home. She's got to move. So she's like, and I'm like, there you go. She's like, I hate you. And it's like, it's not my fault. I was built for digging in the ground and picking up rocks. I mean, that's kind of how we're made. And so what we have here is a situation where you have an immense amount of power that is awfully frightening when misused. So what you will read here is a limit on masculine power. Notice what it says. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives. This is, this is radical, by the way. It was not told to any Roman man that you need to love your wife. Yeah, you loved your lover. You made sure she was great. You had kids with your, your wife and you left her at home to work in the house and locked away. Maybe she got to run the slaves or whatever. That was it. Otherwise, it was all a man's world all the time. We're not talking some misogyny here. In fact, what he says is, no, you need to love your wife. If you're going to lead, you're going to lead with love. And by the way, don't get the wrong idea about leadership. Jesus already defined leadership for us. One day he had two disciples walk up to him and, and they were having this conversation. He's like, oh, Jesus, you know, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your right and your left? Can we be like number, number two, number three? And Jesus goes, well, can you go through the suffering I'm going to go through and drink the cup? Yeah, 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 we can do that. Well, it's not really up to me, but, you know, we'll find out. So they go back. Somehow it had gotten back to the other disciples and all the disciples were like, what are you talking about? Trying to sneak in and hone in on my throne, man. Well, and they're all yelling at each other. Who's going to be greater in the kingdom? Who's going to be the best? And Jesus comes up and he starts instructing them. He says, guys, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus called them and he called them and said, hey, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. You know, they like to push down authority and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If you want to be first, you must be servant, slave of all. You want to know what leadership looks like in the home? Leadership in the home is spelled L-A-S-T, last. You want to lead well in the home? You want to teach your children to be able to put other people before others, then put them before you. You want to see your wife lift up your needs and your situations before her own, put hers before yours. Leadership in the home for men is spelled L-A-S-T, servant of all. And you do it with love. 
Now, this is a radical transformation of the powerful. I'm going to be the CEO that tells you what to do. No, this is the, I'm here to care for you, to lift you up, to give you. It's no wonder many men have balked at this kind of leadership and have gone for easy forms of yelling and screaming and poking and shouting and using power because, hey, it seems to get stuff done, but it damages people. No, it's out of servanthood that we lead, spelled last. And so... The Jesus brand of leadership is servanthood, and the Jesus brand of love is self-sacrifice. It's not romantic love. Let's be honest. Romantic love can be really simple. I can tell you I love you, and I can tell you how beautiful you look, and I can do all those nice things and give you flowers and roses and take you to a nice dinner and be a jerk to you all the rest of the day, and that's not love. Love is something radically different. In fact, Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, a bigger expanded version of what we're reading today. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's just stop there for a second. Can I get a show of hands? How many men in here are willing to die for your wives? Throw your hand up. Yes, absolutely. Ready to die. This minute, right now, and every second from this point forward, Right? Because that's what it's talking about. Jesus didn't just go like, I died for you, and then fell in front of a truck and pushed you out of the way. No, Jesus literally laid his life on the line. He walked amongst us broken, sinful, messed up, and he healed, and he, con- and he blessed, and he cast out the demons, and he challenged us in our wrongness, and he encouraged us in our rightness, and he called us back to God. And after all of that ministry, though we rejected him, he loved us by dying for us on the cross to bear our sins, It was a life of service, a life of love. Love is defined by self-sacrifice. Love is only truly known by suffering in this world because everything else could be a lie. But if you're willing to suffer for your wife, you are loving as Christ has called you to love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might, why? Sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so he says the aim of Jesus to love the church was to make them holy. The aim of the family then, husbands, is to make them holy. How are you doing at leading your family to holiness? How much of the world are we letting in to our leadership of our families? How much image of the world are we allowing to define the image of our wives? How often are we found piddling time away on games or in our own little events when we definitely know our wives need our service? This is a life of self-sacrifice to bring them closer to Christ. If something's getting in the way, are you willing to take the baby so they can get up and be with the Lord in the morning? Are you willing to grab the grandchildren so that your wife can have a few minutes away with the Lord in prayer? Are we willing to be self-sacrificial in these ways? Because we're in the lead, and when we stand before God, we're going to have to explain why we led the way we led. This is our accountability, and here's the rough spot. We get compared to Jesus. It's his brand of leadership. It's his loving, decisive aim of leadership. And you know, I believe if we were to do this, if we were to live in this way, if we were to really learn how to lead well, we were really willing to learn and to listen and to guide and care, I think, ladies, you'd probably line up behind that, no problem. 
Be like, you're leading me to be like Jesus. You're doing it by listening to me, taking in my considerations, understanding what I need. You're lifting my needs up before God and meeting my needs. Yeah, I'm with you. Let's go. That's a unified family. That's a family where the needs are being met. That's a family where concerns are being met. That's a family that's praying together, aimed together, off together. Guys, this convicts me as much as it convicts you. I'm obviously painting a very, very strong ideal, but that's what scripture is saying. And even when it comes to the definition, even when it comes to the conversation of sex, it is not just, I get to choose. Yes, I'm the guy and I'm in charge. No, notice this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, very interesting. Do not deprive one another, and all the men said amen, except perhaps by what? Agreement. For a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Why would you, why would you go through this time to focus on Christ? Did you know there's a time you need to agree to back away because you need to focus on Jesus? Do you know there's a time that in agreement, if you have to have agreement in this, don't you need to kind of have agreement in a lot of the other conversations? Good leaders, and you've all been under bad leaders. Everybody's been under a bad leader. A bad leader doesn't listen to you. He just makes decisions, tells you to get over it. You figure it out yourself. No, no. Good leaders taking feedback. They ask questions like, how am I leading you? How am I doing? Good leaders want to know how to grow. Good leaders read and learn. Good leaders are constantly trying to develop so that those people that are following them might follow to somewhere good and know where they're going and why they're going there. Guys, this is what we need to do. Not only be students of the word and students of our wives and students of our children, we need to be students of good leadership. Because the Lord has given you his daughter, your sister, to lead. And she's a disciple of Christ, and you're a disciple of Christ, and that means we need to know how to make decisions in the will of God. We need to aim it at this, and we need to let our power be limited by love. And you need to let your physical power be limited by the presence of the Spirit and self-control. So I need to address this final piece here because he tells us, once again, look at it in verse 19. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be, what? Harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. Guys, I'm just going to say this now. If you are abusing your wife, Physically, emotionally, spiritually, or psychologically, you are sinning against your Lord. And I want you to hear it clearly. Ladies, get out of that house. Get safe if the abuse is, is, is there and it's crushing you and you know it. You know it. Get safe. Call the police. Get the elders involved. And just so you guys know what happens, our elders will call you in, we'll sit you down, we'll lay out the evidence, we'll work through it with you, and you will be faced to either repent of your sin or you'll be excommunicated. And I'm dead serious about this. And according to what I read in the scriptures, you can run off to any church you want, but if a board of elders rightly excommunicates you for a sin that you are not willing to repent of, you are destined for hell. I don't want you to mess around with that. This is how serious this is to our Lord. You do not treat your wife harshly. You do not use your power against her. She is the Lord's daughter, a part of our community, a sister, and we follow Jesus together. 
There's a lot in this. And I, I pray that that didn't have to land in anybody's home. But our God takes these matters seriously. And today you may need healing. You may, you may have some wrestling matches you need to work through. You may have all kinds of stuff. But my friends, we, we have a broken world on our hands. We have an incredible Savior who's putting it together. And guess what? He's called us to be a part of it. And there's an order to it. There's, there's an order. Is that order easy? No. Discipleship's not easy. Being after Jesus isn't easy. But I guarantee you, it's good. Ask yourself this simple question. As you, if you feel like you're still bucking against it. Who is more likely to mess up your life? You or God? It's a great question when we consider whether or not he knows what he's talking about. Let's pray together. Father, I, I just want to lift up our church to you. I love these people and my friends, my brothers and my sisters. And God, there are broken hearts in this room over things they've faced. And there are others in this place that are wrestling with their, with their submission. Their husbands are wrestling with their leadership. And you, you, Jesus, you are gracious to us all. God, there are singles in this room right now wondering if they even want to get married ever again or maybe ever get married ever. And I just ask that you would just bless them, God, with a community that wants to follow Jesus together. I pray that you would help us as husbands and wives order our marriages after you. Whether it's in leadership or in submission, whether it's honoring you with those things, because we know, God, we want to just please you. We know we want to give you our all, that church work is our work, that there's all these pieces that we have available to us, and we want to be after you with everything in us. God, would you bless these men and women with the insight and the direction from your word and your spirit to walk in this way and to have that branded marriage. And I ask you, bless them with this in the name of Jesus. Amen.